Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 365 of them now. And if this is new to you, uh, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu, and you'll see them all, previous ones, organized and categorized in various ways. It's my pleasure today to uh, be conducting a discussion between Adya Shanti and Susanna Marie. Adya is a very well-known and beloved spiritual teacher who lives in the Bay Area, and um, Susanna is a lesser well-known but nonetheless beloved spiritual teacher who lives in the North Bay Area. Susanna had some interesting shifts take place in her interesting life, which has been a, a a series of shifts and spiritual awakenings for many years. Um, but something happened to her uh, about a year and a half ago that she hadn't foreseen or anticipated. And um, it was a, a falling away of the sense of self. Um, and I'd like her to elaborate on that to get us started, but that's what we're going to talk about today. She had had some conversations with Adyashanti about it, and the idea came up to do a Batgap interview on that theme, and Adya very graciously agreed. All the more graciously because he's had a rather nasty flu uh, in recent days, and this whole interview was sort of touch and go, and if I lived in this area, I would will it gladly have postponed this a week or two, but Adya's really been a trooper, and, and he's agreed to continue and do this today, so we really appreciate it. Um, we're up at Aj's house conducting the interview. So, Susanna, maybe we could start by you explaining what happened in terms of this falling away of a sense of personal stuff and that self, and then we'll just kind of take it from there. Okay. Well, um, I uh, had um, been living in, in the state of what I see as unity consciousness, what I call unity consciousness, for probably around eight to eight years or so, um, growing more used to the experience of being in unity and having even the sense of unity kind of thin out. I'd like you to define unity as yeah, because that we can't take for granted that everybody knows what you mean by that. Yeah, what, how do I define unity? Just the sense that... Uh, that inner division is this, uh, has um, fallen away, and this uh, sense of being um, unif- feeling unified inside, and and when I look outside of myself, that there's a sense of unification, that there there isn't a feeling of separation between myself and what I'm seeing, sense of separation between myself and what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, and so on. And also the kind of this, I think everyone's going to have a different experience, you know. Um, we're all wired differently. But for me, uh, when, when I was in that kind of time period, which I, can, I have to say it wasn't always exactly the same kind of experience, that it, that it, it changed over time. It, and um, not only does, did I become accustomed to it, but it also expanded and inst- um, it was a time of inclusion, like including more and more as myself. Like the Sensing. circumference of unity 
expanded and kept taking in. Right. The sense of my being, whatever I looked at, for instance, was um, a part of the experience, like looking at a plant or looking at a person. And and that that kind of expanded to include more and more, not just my body, but also the chair and then the room and others and the, the feeling of the of of everything. Let me just probe you for a second on yeah. that. So was when the experience initially dawned, was it that really the primary focus of perception, of perception that, that was in terms of unity, but secondary and tertiary and so on were, was not, were not. And, but then that, that continued to expand, so the secondary and tertiary and so on, and it just kept expanding out until nothing could be found outside the circumference of unity. Um, just that, that there, I, I didn't feel a sense of something not being unity. Okay. You know, that it was just all one. And when it's really, really obvious, even though there could still felt to be a differentiation between myself and other things, but that didn't conflict with the sense of it being one. And this increasing capacity to be able to become, in a way, feeling like, you know, that whatever I was putting my attention on, that I became that sensing into the bird and sensing into that kind of thing. And over time, I became more and more used to it. It was At first, it was just this kind of like, wow, you know. And um, that came at the heels of an emptying out experience, like the experience of emptiness. And the absence of content was really kind of like being really emptied out was a period of time. And then the unity came in, like a, kind of speak about it like a wave, just kind of took over and filled me up, back up with, with, with um, myself, with the sense of myself as all things. First it was this emptying out, and then this big filling in. And, and then I would say that during the next eight years or so was like an embodiment process, which I love that word, um, where everything that didn't feel like it was, that it knew that it was that, all the aspects of self that felt like it was separate, and didn't you know have that knowledge that wisdom that it was included in it came back home so whatever traumas or or and things, and things like that even including things on the outside you know people um the things that are happening in the world including that also as an aspect of myself that's um kind of like this long period of adjustment was this all just happening automatically, or were you doing something to shepherd it along? Um, I think there was just a, a uh, the wisdom, the wisdom of life was 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 at the helm, and there was this this love affair for for being having everything be included, and when I would discover something that didn't feel included. Then it, then energy would go towards that, you know, out of love, total love. And so over time, this sense of unity just, of course, became normalized as everything does. All spiritual experiences become normalized and we get adjusted to a new way of operating, right? New operating system. And the sense of it started to ebb, not the sense of being at one with, but the sense of it being different from whatever it was before. And I would say this felt sense of self uh, was thinning out over time. I felt kind of like it was like this bubble that was expanding and expanding, and it became thinner and thinner. And I couldn't, if you said, so can you find yourself? I would 
I, I couldn't really say I could. And so this is when, we, when I start to get into the, to the next place that what occurred with the, with the falling away of this, this kind of expanding out of awareness to include more and more. And then one day, that a total sh- another shift of, of perception occurred that I didn't know actually was really coming. I'd heard a bit that there was something beyond oneness. And, um, and, and it, something about it resonated. I could, I could tell that there was truth to that. Um, but it didn't really matter to me because I was quite content. Whatever sense of self was left was totally included in the oneness. There was no problem. There was nothing more that was needed. And so what happened for me, what the, a lot of my shifts over time have come out of crisis. It's kind of like life puts me in these crises. And then it's like, you know, it puts me in a corner, backs me up into a corner, and then it's like this, another letting go happens. And so I was in this crisis a year and a half ago of health, a health crisis and a home crisis. I was getting ill, so I didn't have a place to live that felt good to me, and I felt cornered once again. And there was just this moment, this kind of like, Cohen moment, you know, and it's just like this tightening of the grip. And I realized there is nothing I can do to make this go away. There's just, you know, I think over time we come to those places, right? So it was, it was another one of those moments that felt like I was pushed up against the wall. There's nothing I can do to make this go away. By this you mean the, your, your My situation, situation which, was, which was really difficult for me because yeah. I couldn't house, I couldn't be with my daughter and, you know, I wanted yeah. to still be a mom and take care of her and life was, was really challenging. So I was just like, yeah, there's nothing I can do. And this another release happened, this thing. And... I, what I feel is like there was this separate self-sense that was, I think it might be different for different people, like where it's held in the body, kind of like this, maybe a last grip. I don't know. I want to say last, last, but, it, you know, where it hangs out, where it's like holding on. And for me, I think it was in the body. I think it was the separate self-sense that was still being held within personal will in the body, because I was a mom, I was a single mom for years, and I needed to hold it together, even though there had, I was going through so many different openings and letting goes, right? There was this one part I did not know, where I was still kind of like holding it together, and I couldn't hold it together. And um, what occurred was this, um, and I called Adya like three weeks later, and I said... Just, I need to talk to someone about this. <laughs> I felt in trust, you know. I just can't, I just feel like so much of what needs, that what we, um, when these shifts happen is what supports it is this trust, this major trust and that it's okay, that what's going on, that these shift in perceptions, that you're okay, you know, some aspect of that. Because the um, change in consciousness was so radical, I had not realized that there was still this medium 
that was lying between myself and reality. And that, that state of unity consciousness was part of the medium. It was still a landing place inside. And then that, so many things changed, and I'd like to just shift over to, to one of you, because we can go further. Well, let's shift to Adya and get your perspective on what she's just said. <laughs> my perspective of you know, any kind of yeah. feedback no, occurred to you as she was I speaking. remember our conversation that you just referred to and as you said I mean we all have our own unique journey with all this and yet even though we all have our unique journeys with all this it does seem that there are real similarities it's just kind of how we each individually experience those almost like universal um, transition points, I think, is one of them. You know, and it's very common that there is that that real sort of ex- no self experience comes out of often the unity experience. Um, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you get it. I've seen people get it just the opposite. They get no self and they don't get the unity until later. But usually it often comes out of the sort of a more mature kind of unity experience, you know, and not when it's all new and flowery and, and you know, we're kind of swept away with it. But um, um, So when I, you know, when I hear you, you know, give that, your description of it, which is very um, eloquent in the sense of it just, it just seems so grounded in your experience. And... It just sort of it has the feel to me of like it's the quintessential, it's the quintessential journey from from unity consciousness to no self. It really sounds it sounds very very familiar to you. Feels familiar, and yet part of the interesting thing is the way each person goes through it. Yeah, you know, because it is so unique. In in the same way, it's very unique how people experience unity. Yeah, well. exactly. What happened for you and with the, the shift in consciousness? For me, it was just, it was actually very simple, the no-self part of it. I mean, I think in retrospect, you can look back and see that there's, there's, there's aspects of that sort of no-self experience long before it sort of blooms. It's sort of there, and you get little pieces of, of the puzzle, you might say. And, um, but for me, it, it wasn't heralded in by any, anything... Um, dramatic. It was, I mean, literally, it was just, it was as simple as sitting on the couch and then reading a book and then getting up off the couch. And when I got off the couch, I just had a visceral sense that something got left behind. I had no idea what it was. I didn't go, ooh, it's a very mystical thing. It was just, hmm, just odd, you know, like I felt like something just, something didn't get up off the couch. I wondered what that was. And it wasn't until later when I walked into going to bed, actually, and I just sat on the edge of the bed to go to bed. And, and then somehow the, the little, the, the pieces, the, more the cognitive understanding of what happened kind of clunked in. and went, oh, I, just lost, I lost myself. Oh, okay. And so for me it was this very, it was sort of simple, and it was also um, gentle. You know, which, again, some people can experience this no-self thing can be just immensely destabilizing. So that, that uniqueness to all of our... But this, this way that I experienced, you know, that no-self experience was... It's just kind of 
it's just the way I've always been hooked up with all the spiritual experiences I've had. I, I don't know why. I, even looking when I look back, I I don't know why my mind never made um, much out of them. Actually, it just was just like, oh, okay, there's an odd, there there's an odd thing I see now, and that was it. I never gone. So that was just kind of my mo, the way I related to you know whatever the unfolding. Was but I think the interesting thing that I also that people might find fascinating because I think there's one of the things I think about this also, Rick, is with with no self I think there is the you can have the insight of of no self or an understanding or a sort of taste of it or you can even you can even have a very logical argument for the absence of a of a self. I mean, you can go at it almost any way that you want, but I think there's a, there's a fund, I think one of the fundamental confusions that I often hear is because someone either has, has this figured out in their mind and it makes good sense to them, or they've had a moment of somehow in the middle of some shift, they equate that because we do that, right? When someone, when we hear someone's experience of anything, we just automatically re go, go searching through the memory banks, and we don't even know what's happening necessarily, but it is, and we're looking for something that corresponds to what we hear. And I think this leads to a lot of um, mistranslation, actually. You know, mistranslation. Um, but, so I think, so there's the whole, you know, the, like we're talking about the, the experience of no self, which I think is, is different when it's sort of a lived reality, in the same way that someone can have a really beautiful experience of unity. Next week, it may have been almost like nothing ever happened to them. It may, it may be that it's still there, very obviously. It may be there as sort of just this undercurrent of, I think, of almost like a perfume um, can still be there, and in some cases it can be completely gone. So the no-self-experience, I think, is... Is sort of like that. A lot of times when people talk about it, I often get the sense of, oh, well, they, they visited that for a split second or for an hour or for whatever it is, and which is significant. You know, it's not to say that that's not authentic and it's not transformative, but I think it's part of the thing about this whole conversation of, that's important is that there's the, the lived experiences day to day to day to day, and then there's the the, you know, a, a revelatory moment, you know, and revelatory moments can come and go like flash, you know, flash bulbs, um, and then the living, the actual living of all this stuff is, um, it's not different than the inside, but at the same time, it seems to me it is something's fundamentally very different, you know, it's not like we're living it, like you said, normalized, I think is a good a good way you put it, things, even the most odd straight changes of our consciousness, given time, they become norm normalized, don't they? They become, and it doesn't mean that and thank it's goodness. not still extraordinary. In some yeah. Way, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, I always regarded that as a sign of God's compassion that we can acclimate to anything, because there are a lot of people who are living in circumstances that we would find so horrific, but somehow they're able to acclimate to make it at least bearable, you know. Right. 
Um, and it works on the positive side, too, in terms of acclimating to things. Because you wouldn't want to walk around all the time ooing and eyeing over some spiritual experience which might seem flashy initially. You really have to function yeah. in the world. And yeah. so it wouldn't really be useful to, <laughs> to, unless we could acclimate. Yeah. Yeah. And that we, it's, it's, spiritual experience is no different than any other experience. We acclimate to every experience that becomes normalized. You know, like they say, there's never, there's only one first time with anything. And that's because we immediately starting to become acclimatized, you know, to whatever it is. I remember when this first occurred, <laughs> and it was, I, I was different from you in that it took me a while to acclimate. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that's good to speak yeah. about because people will be mm -hmm. having different experiences. So Absolutely. many different types, right? The range. And just the desire itself, as you mentioned, like we talked relatively soon after that, that part of the, the our one's humanity that often will like touch in in a real, in a way like, oh, is there another, is there another being here that has, that understands where I'm at? Exactly. And I, I think, think that's a very human connectedness thing that's important. One of the hope, uh, maybe values of speaking about it together with Rick and um, maybe it'll be useful for somebody to see that this is really something that can be trusted and that is safe, and that can be let go into, um, you know, the undifferentiation of our being, you know, that yeah. which is um, not fixed yeah. and um, not localized mm -hmm. and doesn't have um, a self-referencing component to it. It's just pure experiencing. I think that at times we all drop into that in the day. We can we drop in without even knowing that we're we're just experiencing directly. But the habit of the um, self-referencing of an eye, you know, of a landing place. First, um, when there's more of an egoic structure, the landing place of the of the me, right? And then in unity, it's the self-referencing of the divine center mm -hmm. that gets referred, and you think that it's it's actually done and over with in some level, you know. Mm -hmm. And but really, there's still a landing place, and when that um, landing place ebbs and um, is finally um, taken away, actually, you know, because it's not it, the intermediary of that life has. In, in, this, in this vehicle that we are, in this being that we are, doesn't it need to exist to function. Functionality is occurring quite well. It knows how to do everything already. It doesn't need to keep having this kind of inner prop of an intermediary in order to, to make things happen, to move, to talk, to do. And so when that finally goes away, for some people, it's kind of, you know, this may be an easeful thing. And with other people, I don't know why, because I was live, you know, getting so used to unity consciousness and different kinds of states. You know, I don't know why it would be such a big thing, but I'm kind of like one of those little bit of a fireworks girl, you know, mm -hmm. mystic. A big experiencer. A big experiencer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, to be honest, it's kind of enjoyable. Sure. Almost, but it's like it's not, it's it's not like a yeah right you know four months of being uh, sort of you know on a, you know on a on a on a, a Disneyland ride, but luckily there's you know if you over time I think one of the benefits of having someone to speak with, to be able to hear about this, 
to have gone through a lot of paces of change, you know, experiential change, is that when something of this magnitude that can be of magnitude um, happens, that one doesn't feel like you're like you know going crazy, you know, because honestly, if this had happened in the very beginning, I mean, life is so gracious. It, it weaned me, you know, over time, and I didn't even have that much of a... I mean, I had a, a sense of self, but it wasn't, like, fixed, you know? Like, um, I never really trusted it, honestly, growing up. <laughs> but anyway, regardless, it is a little tenacious, you know, thing, and it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's totally innocent and fine, and, and it's not like, not like this is even a goal, you know, but the thing is, is that, and we can talk about this, it's just the, the, I don't know if it's a fact or if it's just the, this, the way things are, is that we're just really truthfully forces of nature. We're not, we're not really separate persons, you know, with a, with a fixed center. We're just forces of nature with the sense that there's a person there until it's not. And this has an ebbing away journey that we call the spiritual journey. Yeah. yeah. Funny you use that term force and force of nature because that's the exact same term that I had in my mind for a while after that, that uh, dropping away happened. And the only way I could think about myself at all was a force of nature, and I don't mean necessarily a big force or a small force, or just a force, in the same way that the wind through the trees is a force of nature. Um, I, I understand absolutely that terminology. So, Aja, you made a course on <clears throat> the falling way of the sense of self, which is an online course that people can still take if they want to, and I, I listened to the whole thing. <clears throat> and one point you made in the course, which is kind of a commonly understood point, I, I think, is that you, you can't really understand something until you experience it, you know? I mean, you couldn't... Uh, I mean, you could spend hours and years describing the color red to a blind person, and words wouldn't do it. No. And yet it's such a simple thing to experience red if you're not colorblind or something. And we can say that of any experience, tastes, and sure. anything we can experience. So, and you make the point in the Course that um, one can't really understand this falling away of the sense of self unless one actually undergoes it or experiences it, um, which I suppose, I suppose is true of all spiritual experiences. It's good to try to get an understanding, I think, because it um, smooths and safeguards the path. You, you have a sense of what's coming, um, and so when it does come, you're not befuddled. Um, yeah, that's the primary reason to have that, or some sort of map. Yeah, it help, helps because we still have minds and our minds still want to are in their own domain and they want to know what's going on they want to know what's happened and so I agree with you I think that's why I did the course actually just so that there is a at least enough of a stru- a, a map or a structure yeah. that someone can kind of go oh okay and um, I think that's really valuable you and I were talking before we started the interview about the the sort of the value of um, knowledge, both individually and as a spiritual culture, and how the the knowledge of the whole possible range of, of spirituality might be uh, somewhat comparable to the the knowledge of the topography of North America in the days of Lewis and Clark, and you know maybe a few hundred years 
from now or on some other civilization that's much more advanced than ours. Ours, our understanding, everything that's been provided so far by all the wisdom traditions might seem relatively primitive. You know, it could be a lot more detailed and clear and universally <laughs> agreed upon. We were also talking about that, of, you know, tr sure. the agreement and, and verification of truth claims. I don't want to get too long-winded here, but, you know, I'm kind of the guinea pig in this conversation because I can't honestly say that I have experienced the falling away of the sense of self. But there was one thing that jumped out at me in lesson three of your um, course, which in which you said we're multidimensional beings and we have the capacity to simultaneously experience paradoxically different realities and incorporate them within incorporate the paradox and live very comfortably that way. And so for me, there is in my experience a, a paradoxical thing where very clearly there is no person, there is no sense, there is no self, and yet there is. And, you know, if you ask me who, where I am or who I am or what I am, I, I would say, well, I'm, 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 there's nobody here, and there's somebody everywhere, and yet there's somebody right here. Mm -hmm. And I'm all that. And you also say here, there remains a sense of self. It's like a perfume. If there were no sense of self whatsoever, someone could call your name and you wouldn't turn around. Um, so that was, one of, that, that was also sort of a resolution point for me because I keep even bringing up that example. If I come in the room and say, hey, Aja, you know, and you turn around. Yeah, there, there's some, and you, were, you were sick in the past week or so, and sure I was. wasn't sick. It was being experienced here somehow right. by somebody, by something. By something. <laughs> yeah. uh, wasn't being experienced by this something. Yeah. So there seems to be, even though there's the universal quality, which is impersonal, there else, I don't know how we can live as human beings without some semblance, at least, of uh, a localization mm -hmm. of identity. And yeah. maybe we can, but maybe you can just Well, I mean, out. I think we, 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 we do when, when, when it's necessary. It happens. I mean, you, know, you can get in a sort of a really deep state, sort of samadhi states, where you, you have no idea where to put the food. Yeah. You can be, I've been there, I've, and I've seen people there. They're there at a retreat, they've got the food in front of them, and their mind's trying to decide, where the hell do I put it, over there or over here? Now, that's not necessarily, I mean, it, it definitely has no self-quality to it, but that's, that's, that's a temporary state of sort of absorption you could enter into, and, you know, it's, but obviously it's not particularly functional. No, I think of Brahman Maharshi in the fifth Right, right. Yeah, if we took that as like, okay, that is the pinnacle of enlightenment, which people sometimes do. Yeah, I mean, like, God, what do we do? What are we involved in here then? You know, so we just become so like whacked out somewhere that someone eats our legs off and we don't know. Not much of a selling point. Right. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not being a critic of Ramana by any stretch of the imagination. He, just like everybody else, went through his own process. And, you know, there was obviously a reason that he started to speak when he usually wouldn't speak. There's a reason he kind of came out of his cave and engaged in people when he really kind of didn't do that or wouldn't do that ten years before that. So, you know, we all, we all undergo our own... I mean, he may have sort of been absorbed within the cell from the time he was 16 up, up until, you know, the rest of his life, but I think that doesn't mean that our experience of that does not evolve 
and I think that's another good case. I want to go back to something just to give voice because I've met so many people in this regard when they have some 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 experience of no self, or even they sense it something coming. Um, people can be thrown into and have been thrown into real terror with this with this stuff. Um, you know, um, me and Susanna were kind of lucky in a certain sense, you know, you had your own disorientation around it. I mean, everybody will have a certain amount of disorientation. I did. It wasn't, it didn't register as problematic, but nonetheless, but it can go anywhere from like mild disorientation to absolute catastrophic four-alarm, you know, psychological fire. Yeah, um, Suzanne Siegel. Suzanne Siegel was a great, you know, really living with the infinite. Right. Now, she's a really good example of somebody who who experienced no self um, for at least a decade, if not more, before she ever ran into unity consciousness. Yeah. So she had this thing just the opposite way that we're describing it, which is, you know. And in the meanwhile, she raised a daughter and got a master's degree and all, but she was in abject terror the whole time, she said. That's right. Constantly looking for herself. That's right. Not finding one. Yeah, yeah. And part of that, I think, is, I mean, I often think it might have been helpful if she just had a useful map. And also, most of the time, it comes from our own personal psychology. And, you know, everybody has their unmet demons. And certain spiritual experiences will invoke those demons. And if there's not much there, then you're not going to experience much. But if there is some real unresolved stuff, as in most people there is, a no-self experience can be really, really frightening. There's no place to land. There's no place to hide. There's nothing to buffer buffer you. Right. And in one sense, it can be absolutely lovely. But if you've grown up and you've had, say, successive experiences of being in a totally unbuffered, very vulnerable place, and then had some very difficult things or, you know, happen, your, your relationship with losing the buffer is, is one of fear. It doesn't mean you, people can't go through that. They can. You know, they can move through that. But um, I just wanted to give voice to that because I've seen a lot of it. You know, over the years, people even get close to no self, and sometimes it generates a lot of um, a lot of fear. And again, I think the maps, although that's not the answer to it, a good map that's simple enough to understand yeah. can be useful. Just to say, hey, you're not going crazy here. I think that's part of what spiritual teachers are for. Like when you're when you're experimenting with consciousness, you can experience some really wild things. And so wild that you don't know. You don't know sometimes, have I just gone off the deep end or not? And I think part of the function of a spiritual teacher or mentor is to be able to mirror back, like, no, everything's okay, don't worry. Or, well, you kind of got, you know, one foot out of the boat there into the ocean. You might want to, you might want to, you know, just check what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I I wanted to just say that also the, um, the, one can have premonition that something is coming. And when I said earlier I didn't know something was coming, that wasn't quite true. I forgot that uh, the year before I'd had a um, uh, kind of a vision that, um, that, that I was um, possibly going to die when I was 51. <laughs> and so um, 
I was kind of, and that was like 10 months, you know, from the time of the vision. And I was kind of preparing myself on a certain level with my, the idea of maybe I'm actually going, you know, my kids make sure that everything is in order. I wasn't scared. And I didn't have anything um, to give me indication, although I did have that health crisis, but, um, which made me wonder. <laughs> and, and the rest of the part of me was okay with it. It wasn't a crisis in terms of fear. It didn't evoke fear, but there was the sense that something is coming to an end, and it could, it, 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 whatever it is, could be, it's going to be the end of me. And um, I had the same thing, you did. It was just it was the being knew that there that this timeline of 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 selfness, <laughs> the birth of self, you know, that almost feels a little bit like soul. You know, it just has this feeling like it's it it has evolution involved in it. It has an inner development aspect to it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And a beautiful journey. And I didn't have a feeling like this should end, you know. There was I think that that's a wonderful time that it when it actually does. It's kinda of like when a child grows up and they're a teenager and they're really doing quite fine and they launch themselves from a place of doing quite fine. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was kinda of like that. And um so when this occurred, I um I recognize now it was a, a premonition of the end of of Susanna. <laughs> so whatever whatever was left of of um, Susanna Ness that was actually kind of still had a sweet sense to it, a sweet felt sense, even though it was so thinned out, just a little trace. <laughs> but I could find it, and it was a, it was something like yeah that self sense is included in the whole within unity. And it's something that um, was with me when I was little. And it's something that was with me, you know, up to this moment that this occurred. And when this occurred, it was no longer. So, so that is why I actually feel that as much as one can say, oh, there's still a, some individual left, there's still, you know, human, you know, all that stuff. I can't say that I can find it. And I'm not saying that it isn't there. It might be so thinned out and diffused. There may be, you know, yet more, and that's totally fine, you know? There's, there's no... Um, intelligence knows what it's doing. That's basically it. But um, I just can't find it. And when someone will, you know, at times, like, my good friend Rick will say, so who is it that's feeling confused or, you know, and I, and I, I can't find it. I can't find it. I just want to say this Can because... Can anybody ever find it, though? I mean... Well, that's the thing is this, this no, no self <laughs> is, is already everyone's experience truthfully without, without a medium. And that's part of the exploration. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's also, you know, the words and... The way we talk about it is, I think it's important that we're we're they were getting underneath the words. So when I say, so for instance, there's a sense of self. I could I thought because I've you know sometimes ago since I've taught that course, and if I teach it again, I would probably say something more along the lines like a sense of being. 
Again, like he said, no matter how we talk about this, the fact is, is that when you're hungry, you do know where to put the food. When someone calls your name, you, you turn around and you don't turn around when 50 different names are called. Or whatever we want to call that recognition. Right? There's a recognition that where there is a, 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 a kind of differentiation occurring, whether the differentiation is real or unreal or whatever it is. But there's obviously a kind of recognition, right, that we're, that's being utilized all the time, moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. But on the experiential level is that recognition can occur without a separate self-sense. Because a separate self-sense is a, is, a, is a sort of a, like I said, it lives experientially as a, as a sense of sort of definite locatability, but I don't mean the locatability just in a pragmatic sense, but the self-sense is a sense of locatability in a concrete sense. So if somebody, so I know other people, you know, some people, for me personally, I'm not that, I, I'm, I'm really, thing that I'm always listening for is what's underneath the words we speak. What they really signify. I mean, words... <laughs> for the person who's speaking them. Right. Rather than the way I might understand those words and those phrases from my background, I'm often like, going, okay, well, what do you mean when you speak, you know, when you talk, when... I think that's what makes conversation fascinating, is that we do use very common terms, often in very different ways. And to mean very yeah, different and if we're things. really trying to communicate, not just make noises, then we really have to understand right. what we mean by these words. Right. Now, of course, in, in the tradition I came from, when they talk about the selfless, absolute nature of reality, they go to great pains to remind you that is not enlightenment. Right. Right? That's, that's a step, but that's, that's, not, that's not ultimately it, because there's uh, only when the, all the fixation is done with whether it's self or no self. It, reality, we invented the terms. Right? We, we, we made these things up. And I think when we come back to actual experience, it's harder to make, at least for me, definitive statements. Like for me, no self is not a philosophical definitive statement about the nature of anything, necessarily. That's not how I personally use it. I use it as there is this, there is a, a perception. And a perception is, for me, best described as no self. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's based um, in experience rather than anything else. So then I'm not even talking about whether there is or isn't self. To me, like, that's, what does that mean? What are we talking about? When, but when we come back to actual experience, What's your experience of self? What's my experience of self? What's your experience of not having that there any longer, right? Which is what we're talking about. What's my experience of not having that there any longer? What's left, right? And how does one function? Where do you function from? You know, because we obviously still function. Like you said, when you call my name, I'm, I have no problem knowing exactly who you're referring to. You know, yeah. it's like in the state of an undifferentiated consciousness, we can experience ourselves as everything um, without, w w while we still recognize 
a certain sort of, like I said, somebody calls your name in unity consciousness, you're not looking at the tree for it to answer, you know, we just instinctually, we know, somehow. That's something I would like to talk about, is just the experience. Go for it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let me throw one thing in here that I think pertains, it won't take us off track, and that is... Well, firstly, the very structure of our language has all these personal pronouns in it, I and we, yeah. and so on. And it kind of makes it sound like there's a somebody in there someplace that is referring to itself. Um, and the very structure of perception, as I have always understood it, uh, has a sort of a threefold nature. There's the object of perception, the mechanics of perception, and some kind of perceiver, some kind of screen that, has, that, is, that the perception registers on or with. And we could say that it's consciousness in a universal sense, but then, you know, perception is individual. There's your perception, my perception, and so on. Squirrel's perception. So, you know, we have physical bodies, obviously, uh, at least in a relative sense we do. And the various esoteric traditions talk of subtle bodies and, and, and all. And... Anything, I suppose, in the relative can ultimately be boiled down to nothingness if you want to take it there and look closely enough. But if we're speaking about anything, if we're, if we're talking about perception and so on, that's a relative phenomenon. And it seems to me that relative um, faculties of some sort are needed to make that phenomenon possible. And if we have physical bodies and subtler aspects of the senses, why not some kind of subtle, subtle knower, you know, jiva uh, uh, of some sort that um, is just part of the mechanism for experience? And just one more thing I'll say, a little esoteric, but I know Susanna and many other people have had experiences of deceased masters coming to them, and Padmasambhava or Nimperali Baba, and people have had Ramana and so on. Does, does that imply, perhaps, that um, there is some subtle essence, even to a fully enlightened person, that, that uh, is the, the personhood of that, the essence of that person, that, that persists even after enlightenment? And mm-hmm. might that be the subtlest aspect of the sense of self, which doesn't, in fact, die mm-hmm. um, when the body dies, and, um, might, and of course, is, is there in us even now? Mm-hmm. So I hope that'll come together as one. It's a great question. question. <laughs> you want to take a shot at it? I've just been talking, so I figure I'll let you. So there's two parts to that, just to reiterate. There's me- mechanics of perception and, and whether there has to be a perceiver if there is an object of perception and a process of perception or, uh, you know, the senses and stuff. And, and then if there is a perceiver, does that perceiver ult- ultimately just cease to exist like a drop in the ocean or does it retain some integrity? Uh, and does it have some integrity now uh, while we're still alive? Is there, in fact, a self of some sort, even though it's maybe become so diaphanous or something that we don't have the sense of it that we once did when, when we were less enlightened? It's interesting, isn't it, that we, that we just the, like the language I know. that we use. Like, if there's perception, there must be a perceiver. Really? Well, where, where is the perceiver in any of us in this room right now? 
there's perception, obviously. Right, right now we're seeing each other. Where's the little guy behind that? That's well, okay. So let's say we have this. Let's, we're all we all are the one consciousness. This, um, you know, wave and ocean analogy. But somehow, through this body mind, one perception is happening. Through this one, another. Through this right. one, another. Is it just my brain and my eyes and so on? The, this brain, these eyes and so on that are that are resulting in perception, or is there a subtler mechanics that kind of intermediates between consciousness as an unbounded universal field and individual experience? Great question. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I promised Susanna I wasn't going to get too intellectual here, but I think about these things. I'm going to be happy to take a swipe It, it might be a great question. Um, I'm, more, I'm more experientially based rather than um, in terms of being able to connect and speak about something, it, it works better for me to speak about my experience versus um, some kind of intellectual avenue in, which is totally valid as well. But um, I don't really think about those kinds of things. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like to me, it's, and I'm not saying it's not valid, but I th- in the end, it's it's just pure experiencing that's that's happening, and it's just so instantaneous and so now without the um, a filter of reflecting on experience. That filter is what disappears, mm-hmm. and so then it's just like so feeling and sensing and thinking and speaking. It's all just happening now, 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 and. Um, and I don't know if that in any way touches on what you just said. I think it's actually a really good yeah. explanation because I think a big part of what self is is that thing inside or that imagined thing inside, which is always, you know, it's not just experiencing. It's talking to itself about experiencing. It's always putting itself as, in sort of the intermediary. It is, yeah. And it's it's the way that it, I think it's the reason that adults look longingly at young children because they're unselfconscious, which yeah. which is really what we're we're talking about in a certain sense. Yeah. They're unselfconscious. They're just completely being the moment and you know adults look at little children and they go wow I, I i remember that that would be and just that look you know that that clear look of just like just being here yeah. and then the kids in turn are looking at the adults going what's wrong with them <laughs> i remember it i remember thinking there was something you know um not wrong but just something off like there were times when my parents were there and there were times when they weren't and it was just when they, that cloak of, of, of personality or selfness would come over, like, pers- you know, it's pers- personality. And then they would be hijacked. They'd be hijacked by this virus <laughs> that was slowly taking me over, too. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's the, where the beginning of the spiritual search happened for me. But, um, and that's kind of why I wanted to speak about the, the experiencing of this because it, it, to me it just touch, it touches at the heart and I think that in many ways we can all relate to the experience of it it's not necessarily something that's so elevated or so out of reach 
Because I think we all, especially if we're interested in this kind of stuff, if we're even like wanting to watch this, <laughs> it, there's, there's something that hasn't completely forgotten. You, you wouldn't be interested in it. No. So there's something already that feels, you know, touched or close to home with, ah, oh, I can just, really, I can just be myself. I can, I can be my natural self. Instinct in that direction, too. Every, almost everything we do for pleasure is a way to temporarily escape a sense of self. Whether we're watching TV or listening to music or, or going to the movies or taking drugs or trying to meditate. Or, there's so many of these. If you look at, like, what's the commonality of things we do for recreation? Like, the commonality isn't what we're doing. It's what it's helping us achieve, which is self a kind of forgetfulness of self. So we can be here again, so feel ourselves, right. and then it, people, we tend to shy away from it. And we were you know, beginning to enter into the conversation earlier about nature. And I, and I really think that it's, it's an incredible value. It's like, the, to me, the, the most direct teacher is nature. And I think we share that I in do. common. Yeah. It's just totally unfiltered. There's, there's nothing lying between. Uh, it's not just nature. It's, it's all, all things. But not, the natural world is, 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 has such sentience to it, you know. You can feel the, the life force of it. And it's just being itself so completely without any, any um, medium. And, and it's so healing for people. It's so healing to go, and I really highly recommend it, just to go and feel where it is even as an experiment where you yourself feel the veils, the separation between yourself and this beautiful, natural world that surrounds us. It's, that is a great meditation, and I used to do that ongoingly. Just go out into nature and spend time and feel the, the veil, the, the, whatever was lying between myself and that, because it was, it's such a great teacher, and you can feel when it starts to ebb and you start to feel your, you know, relax and go, ah, you know, that yeah. kind of sense of, unfiltered um, ness. We don't even have to call it no self, right? It's just really natural. It's our natural state, like Nisargadatta says. It's the thing that we, like you said, in the, we go in, the, in nature, and the wonderful thing about nature is it's not selfing all over the place. Like one tree isn't comparing itself to another and going into an existential crisis because it's not the tallest or the brightest or the, you know, it's, and it's this, this, this lack is what people feel in like nature, right? They say, "Oh, that's not happening." Like there's the, the trees aren't self-consciously, you know, in the sense of in this endless state of comparison and and all the rest. They're just being. It's just a tree. And we can just be ourselves. We can just well, I know be people ourselves. Who have talked to trees, and I believe them. And, and have talked to plants and stuff. You may have said that. Oh yeah, I, def definite conversations. Yep. Yeah. I interviewed a guy a week or so ago who was one of the original directors of Findhorn in Scotland, and there's a whole story about that. But when he was a young boy, once he was running through a field with a stick, and he was, David Spangler is his name, and he was whacking ferns, you know, and he was just running through the field. And, and, the, and all of a sudden he heard the ferns. They cried out, Why are you doing this to us? 
Oh, I don't mean to imply that they're just sort of totally unconscious lumps of matter that have no relationship to what's happening. No, you're not implying that. No, just... <laughs> what I'm getting at is there's some spirit, some essence, some sure. jiva, some soul, some self in even, you know, things like that, maybe. Well, there's some consciousness there. Consciousness, or sen yeah. Sentience, sure. Yeah. yeah, it's just, it's all, it's all back to unity. Unity still is a you know, the fact of things, that everything is one, that is God, That's creative intelligence. Yes. And so, so even though there's a separate self-sense that can be felt by millions and billions of people, it, it's still all the same thing. And it has its purpose for whatever reason. And it has its timing. It has its own divine timing of when that ebbs and goes. Hopefully it's going to work, you know, it's going to be in an intelligent enough way that people, that the being has a chance to be able to um, adjust to it without feeling, um, um, you know, too much di disjointed or even, um, there are probably some people who are, um, you know, maybe even in the asylums or such, and I don't want to scare people, but I don't. I also want to be able to say that it's just it's 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 such a for some it's such a change of consciousness that it can be uh, what Adya was saying earlier frightening, and and I really do feel like if that is the case if it's frightening to to find a good mentor a good teacher that that can that can assuage your fears by the modeling of the natural state the modeling just like nature models to us that being oneself completely is pure joy human beings what we are we're forces of nature as well and we can be the modeling first be that and then be the same for each other because we're meant to be in service to one another. We're all, you know, in service to each other, as you know. One of the reasons we're doing this interview, one of the reasons you did that course, um, and one of, I, I suppose, your, both of your primary functions as a spiritual teacher is to, you know, give people a sense of what they may encounter along the spiritual path. I think there's two values to, to knowledge of the spiritual path, um, what it may entail. One is inspiration and motivation. It's like it's really worth pursuing because there's, you know, something good to be had uh, as as one compared to not having it. And another is that um, it safeguards the path. It, it it enables us to not be terrified if some something develops or to say, oh yeah, this is what they said was going to happen, now it's happening, great. You know, whereas otherwise you might freak out. Um, and you know, the falling away of the sense of self doesn't sound like much of a selling point for most people, I think. You know, let's say, well, why would I want that? Am I going to lose interest in my children? In fact, some woman asked you that during the I course. I get that asked all the time, yeah. as I've said during the course, and 99% of the time it's women. Yeah, or am I going to lose interest in my business? Am I going to lack motivation and just kind of sit around contemplating my navel and the whole business is going to go bankrupt or something? I'd be the type A <laughs> businessman. Right, so I gave you two examples <laughs> so there. productive. Um, 
But I think probably both of you would say that although there may be um, transitionary periods and times when you need to integrate and reshuffle and maybe you need to even take a little retreat for a while to, you know, but ultimately you, if properly integrated, one can be dynamically engaged in whatever course of action one is best suited for and actually perhaps find that one is more successful at it when one has gotten out of the driver's seat and let that which is actually driving the universe take over. That's, uh, that's a great thought. That's really quite <laughs> impressive. <laughs> I think the thing with, at least that I've seen with, this, with no self, is the thing that I think is the reason why often people have a sort of preemptive fear about it is because, you know, like Susanna was suggesting in, in, in lots of different ways, that we often do know, and we often know more than we're letting ourselves know. And I think one of the things that we intuitively sense with this whole no-self thing is that um, um, you very well may not have the same options you had as when you had a self to, you know. Um, in other words, you know, we haven't even got into the areas of, uh, like the experiential part of no self in the sense of we've got into some of it, but the whole other part of it is like the dropping away of personal will. And that's the, that's the motivating energy that moves self or ego. And when that goes, your options of moving through the world in that way, and sometimes that's really painful, but sometimes it's not so... Some people got it going pretty good. It's working out relatively well for them. Um, but when that energy goes, it goes, and that's why. And then something else can not come. necessarily overnight. It, oh it, no, no, no! It could be there could be very years rarely of overnight. Sort of seesawing between, and uh, sometimes it never goes. Right. With some folks, you know, <laughs> it never goes all the way. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just part of like the, the sort of speaking about this in an honest way. Um, yes. I've always thought the thing that's the, the thing that's sellable, that's or marketable. Not that we're marketing this at all. <laughs> no. But people's traditional ideas of enlightenment, you know, you know, with with unity and and then whatever they've got baked up around that, at least it's an idea. It's wantable. Right? It's wantable. Hey, I'll be happier. I'll be freer. I'll feel more connected. I'll feel more intimate. It's the goodies. No self. It's not the goodies. It's not bad. Oh no! Oh, but no. it's it's hard to say that it's it even falls on the spectrum of positive or negative. It's it's you can't really it doesn't fit into the sales pitch. That's for sure. Oh it's, no! It's something so other than that. You don't um, have a there's not a you anymore that is expanding and growing and developing and improving. Yes. Yes. It's over. Yes. Well, the, for 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 the idea of yourself that happening it's over yeah for the idea of yourself right right it doesn't mean on a you know that we don't that evolution's not happening. evolution doesn't continue yeah right. happen and and we we don't suddenly stop learning from what happens to us in life and all that kind of no stuff. absolutely not but yeah. there's not a the the well i just want to get back a little bit to the personal will part yeah yeah so that's a big piece it's the, it, it, yeah, it's the it's, it is the hallmark mm -hmm. because the ego-driven self is um, run by personal will. 
And so when that initially drops, um, that's the primary awakening. That's what we call awakening. And But then there is the, the self itself that is this, like the divine will. That's my experience, mm-hmm. is that divine will kicks in. And the divine will is kind of like uh, its uh, motivation is um, Bernadette Roberts. She says, the will to God, will towards God. I love that. It's like this, this will for God's will. Mm-hmm. It's the will for ever deeper um, allowance of, of whatever that is, like a learning, a big learning curve, you know, diving into what is God's will and no longer my will. And it's, it's it just this, this kind of transference seems to happen organically from the personal will, right, falling away on that level, to divine will, which feels really different. It's a totally different kind of experience. You don't really feel like it's my will anymore. But there's will force there. And, um, and it's a wonderful thing, and it, it's, 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 it's working towards um, the whole in, in, a, in a kind of selfless way, uh, for an altruistic kind of way, for, its, yeah. for itself, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's still got this motivational energy in it, which is wonderful. It's yeah. not something that I even think should go away necessarily. But when the, the, this other falling away occurred for me is um, uh, the the will force of what drove this body just fell, just fell away. It's almost like, even like what made it walk, you know, like what happened at two years old or whatever the age is. What is the age we start walking? One? One. I don't think I was two. I would be really late. But, you know, it's possible. Yeah, I think it's around one. Um, (laughs) Remember that. But, you know, like, there's this kind of, like, excitement, you know, when we're one, of, like, me. This is me walking. This is, you know, like, and me speaking and me learning. It's a wonderful thing. But the sense of me fuses into the body. It fuses into form. And so my experience uh, was when, this is just my experience, you know, I don't know what happens with with whom, when. But when that, this last kind of thing kicked over, um, it was the will force left um, the body. And and then it became really, it, it it still walked, but there was this little bit of disorientation process, this time that kind of like, well, uh, it's been walking this whole time just fine. And that's what's doing it. It's it, This will force that I thought was me never really made it walk. That was a layer that was superimposing itself over the this walking. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and so I'd love for to hear more from you about the will and like personal will and divine will and the falling away of will. Well, I think gosh, you put it so well. It certainly maps mapped my experience for sure. Um, of you know, divine will, like you said, is a wonderful thing. I think almost think of it as like the 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 atmosphere, the inner atmosphere of of, of inspiration and divine will. You just feel there's a, a it's not the same inspiration that somebody necessarily on a soapbox is, you know, is feeling, but it's this divine will. It's very, it's just very positive and very beautiful, and and has a power to it. And I think for a while, most of us we just become accustomed to that. 
you know, and that's like, okay, that's, that's it. And, and it's, it's, and it's very benevolent, which doesn't mean that it always makes everybody happy, but it means it's, it's just, it's kind of in a benevolent energy. And then I think that's why it's often surprising when that sort of divine feeling energy, when the bottom falls out of it. Um, one woman that had this happen, I remember many years ago, I just loved just thinking of her, remembering her. And she had this happen one evening when we were together, and she came back in a week later, and she had this little temper tantrum. It was, it was about as much as she could bake up, which wasn't much. But she said, you stole my God from me. And then she sort of looked at me to see if I was going to join her in being upset. And I almost fell over laughing. And then, which sparked her, like, almost falling over and laughing. But I got it. You know, I, I got it. Because she had had that divine will thing for a long time and really been unified with it. And it was really, really beautiful. And at least for a short little period of time, the, the mind was, was reflecting enough to kind of go like, hey, I don't have that anymore. I actually really like that. You know, that was really, really cool. And, you know, that didn't last long, you know, that little, that last little sort of reflective movement. But it was really interesting to see how, and again, for somebody else, I like to see how all this operates in other people, that, that it sort of had that, that little temporary feeling. We've been talking now a little bit about God and divine will and things like that. And I've had a, I have a Meister Eckhart quote here that I've been wanting to throw in. This is probably a good oh, time. He says, you can only fully know God from God's point of view. To know God, you have to be God. Uh, some people would consider that blasphemous, but with a moment's reflection, um, if God is supposed to be omnipresent, then is there anything that is not God? How did, if, if so then God's not on the present. There's a hole somewhere in God where it's, there's something else. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, right. And so, in light of that thought, and God has, in, in light of that thought, everything is God. Um, well, I just kind of said that. But And then everything is divine. If so, everything is divine will because some things don't seem so divine. And there seems to be this sort of you know, you've raised children, um, and there's a certain point at which they become teenagers and they, get, they start pulling away and they get more independent and more rebellious and stuff like that. And that seems to be a necessary phase before coming a, becoming a self-sufficient, autonomous result. Adult, I mean to say. Um, result, yes. <laughs> um, so it almost seems like that. It's a, it's a, our human evolution recapitulates that in a way where uh, you know, animals maybe are completely one with God. You know, they, they just um, function automatically, instinctually. There's no individual will or intention or anything like that. And then, you know, human beings come along and uh, they're in the teenage phase in a way where they have um, mo individual volition, motivation, things like that, which um, may not be at least in the short run or, or obviously in their best interest. It could be very destructive, very harmful, so on and so forth. doesn't seem so divine. Um, and then this, the spiritual evolution process seems to lead into relinquishing that individual rebelliousness and coming back into alignment 
with divine intelligence, but kind of at a different level altogether than the animals had it. Well, the animals also have it. They have it in sort of almost like a, a certainly pre-childhood, but almost a pre, pre like an infant, like an, like an infant is in a totally merged state. It's not the same state as oneness, and it certainly isn't the same. They don't have a self, but they have no conscious recognition of what's happening. They're just, they're in pure experience, yes, but if we equated that with, you know, the deeper spiritual states, what we'd be basically be, be saying is we just, we just throw everything into reverse, back up into a pre-natal pre, you know, state as fast as we can, and then imagine that that's some, some leap forward. Yeah, I think Where Ken Wilber calls that the pre-trans really pre fallacy. Yeah, and it's a really important point because even though these things get you know, talked about, it's still constantly I see this, this sort of association almost, whether they're using those wordings or not, of, of um, sure, there are certain similarities, let's say, we've already talked about the lack of self-consciousness in young children, force of, force of nature, there's lots of things that are, that are similar, but, um, but I, think, I, I think of the no-self state as the state sort of after-self. You can bump into it any time, but basically, in, in a from a map making point of view, not pre self. Yeah, but no self. May I add something? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, the 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 sensing being really wakes up as unity consciousness. In my experience, you, you know, you have mentioned that some people drop into no self prior to unity but i think that you know it's almost like well some peop some babies do go straight to walking without crawling but most crawl and i think that unity consciousness is kind of the the it's a it's a phase that is really important because a lot a, a lot occurs during the unity phase there's embodiment there's welcoming there's getting adjusted to undifferentiation you know being not um, a localized focal, focal point there's a lot that happens in the unity phase. And what I noticed is, is kind of going, when, it, when I was reaching toward the end of the unity phase, is that the sensing being was waking up, this, the sensing organism of the divine that you love to say, to use those words. It's just like that, the, the intelligence was, was waking up kind of areas that it didn't even really ha know that it had you know the, the sensing being uh, when it's when we're not when we're not hijacked by the sense the separate self sense the uh, when that eases then what is really paying attention what is really going on has a chance to wake up and get on board and it's kind of like it turns out you know kind of like a, a, a plant towards the sun and it's like these, these, um, this aspect of, of the, the human being, the potentiality of the human being, really starts to get on board. And it's this continuous development. And like Aja says, it's not a reversal. When does, you know, we're not going back to being pure sensing without the capacity for uh, intelligence, uh, for, well, for to, recognition. recognition. The self-reflection... Um, period of self-reflection that 
that we go through as um, in the ego state and within the unity conscious state, that actually solidifies a lot of intelligence, the ability to self-reflect. That doesn't go, that, what, the intel, what has been gained intelligently doesn't go away. It's just the medium itself is what, what falls away. In the same way that you go through, you were talking about adolescence. You go through adolescence, you retain, hopefully, the things that you've, the experience you've acquired and maybe a few things you've learned, but you don't stay, stay an adolescent for the rest of your life. You just move, move on. So if to know God, you have to be God, as Meister Eckert said, and if the falling, and I've heard you say at times that, you know, it's really kind of God running the show once the self has fallen away. It's really, uh, if, and correct me if you hadn't said that. It's right. just God. Just God. It's just God. And so in light of that, there's a phrase in Sanskrit, Brahman is the charioteer. It's sort of like the, 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 the absolute you know, intelligence takes over and runs the, drives the chariot mm-hmm. of your life. So in light of all that, I don't quite understand what you meant by that thing of the bottom dropping out and that woman saying you took away God or something. Mm-hmm. Um, cause well, because you lose your personal self and you lose your experience of a personal God with it. A personal God. Right, they go together. Okay. But that's not to say that the individual life is not still being motivated or driven or yeah. guided by divine intelligence? Um, no, of course it's being, it's being guided by divine intelligence like everything else is right, right? and I, I i think that sometimes and i'm you know i'm happy i i'm a spiritual teacher after all to use spiritual sounding words or religious words but i think sometimes they actually make this whole thing a little more obscure than it needs to be right divine will is just another way of saying what is Otherwise, we got some version of a God somewhere that's imposing will. Now, if we don't have that at all, then what is, is God's will. But we could also say what is, is the will of nature. What is, is the will of existence. What is, is the will of... Well, when I say God, divine intelligence, I don't mean some guy in the clouds. I didn't think you... I mean all-pervading intelligence, where, which has no gap whatsoever anywhere and wherever... If, Wherever you look, if you look closely enough, there it is. Yes. Hiding, no, I, in, hiding in plain sight. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm totally, it's fine, it's fine to, to utilize that, at least for me personally, it's one of the things that fell away. And it doesn't mean, I, I'm not saying that it needs to fall away or will fall away, because it's, after all, it's just, it's just a terminology. So it's the, the terminology, like I don't even think of this stuff, I don't even think of it in spiritual terms anymore. I, it's just it's so even that seems like okay that's that feels like you know it's like look at it through this pair of glasses whereas what no cells really trying to get at is just is the most simple yeah it's just life it's just life yeah, yeah. it's just life spiritual puts this special aura over it but um, yes, and that's you know if we want to use that terminology, like I said, I can do that too. I do I do it all the time. But if for this thing in particular, one of the things that makes it challenging is is the terminology we come to the, the you know the, the wording that we decide to utilize around it. And um, I think it's totally fine to say you know the, to express it as you know God is. 
that's God's will is period as a as a form of of, of expression. But of course, we're not just sitting here. Well, we are sitting here, just the three of us all. But we're going to have a few people <laughs> invited to the party here when they actually come around to look at this thing. And I th- at least in my experience, I was part of what I lost was all the overlays. Here's a quote from a pretty well-known spiritual teacher named Adyashanti. He says, um, your sense of your own being is no longer the ego, which fell away, but this empty center, aware, empty space. Eventually it reveals itself to be divine, the source of all life. When this becomes mature, you look out, quote-unquote, upon the world. You see or intuit that same divinity in everything. You experience in a very concrete, obvious way that everyone and everything is that divinity. This takes on a kind of normalcy. Yes. yes. And that's... that's um, I'm, yeah, yeah. So, I'm, it's, I mean, it's obviously, at least in terminology, it's a, it's a, it's a total contradiction to what I'm saying. Terminology-wise, experiential-wise, that's what I was trying to make the point of. It's perfectly fine the way anybody wants to talk about this as divine or God or any other way. My only my my point is, and this would go true with the ways I have talked about this, and I may talk about it in the next sentence or the next year or at any other time. I've certainly in the last while, I don't know what that means, year or two years or whatever, and becoming more sensitive to the terminology that I do use and the implications that that terminology can leave people with even when I have no intention to leave leave somebody with a certain implication. And like I said, one of my things that I sort of look at now is is this the way the, the way that we talk about this stuff, the terminology we talk about this stuff and what actually serves us and what actually maybe not serve us. And I don't, I'm not, I don't have the answer to this inquiry. I don't know that there is a, like a pat answer, but I think that even as we're using whatever words we're using, any word is anything, that, um, um, that we have a connection, to, 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 that it is, it's, it's beyond that in the same way that this, well, it's no longer a cup of coffee anymore, but, you know, it's going to be what it is, whatever the hell I call it. Yeah, well, that kind of, and I, I want to give you a chance to talk a minute because we've been talking a little bit too much over here, but um, that kind of relates back to our map metaphor. Terminology is important, and if one person is measuring the map in kilometers and the other is using miles, and you say, well, take, take, 40 of those, take 40 units and go to such and such, they're going to end up in different places. So I think it's the evolution of the spiritual culture needs to include or involve um, more and more precision and agreement upon what what words mean uh, when we refer to these various things. Otherwise, it's a Tower of Babel kind of thing where we're all making noises and nobody's hearing Mm -hmm. what the other's actually saying. Yeah, I might, just one last thing, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, is... is, um, I understand, I mean, why, I mean, I've used, like, you know, divine and those things because you're perceiving in a way that's, that has a correspondence to something quite extraordinary. 
even though it becomes more ordinary over time. There's something that's, that seems... But they have a lot of baggage and connotations in people's minds, so yeah. maybe we need whole new words. They do, and I, but I imagine almost anything we can, you know, if, if it's language, it has baggage, yeah. right? Because we learned it from somewhere. And that's part of it is we pick up the, thank you for <laughs> caring what I say here. I'm happy to be listening, by the way, too. It, it's just, that's part of the evolution is, is learning concepts and taking on some baggage with the, with the hope uh, that, that that is serving the unbaggaging. And so that's part of the uh, spiritual journey, that we call it a spiritual journey, when really actually it's becoming a naturalized self, a being, a naturalized being, whatever you want to call it. See there again, that's just another word. Um, free of belief that we are separate in any kind of way. Free of, you know. So we have these words, and we have this um, seeming journey that we go on. And uh, we have um, spiritual teachers, and we have some hopefully good books and, and maps and things that help. And I think there, it's very useful. Language itself is made up, right? And can we, can we, over, can we um, unconceptualize ourselves over time and take off what's not necessary anymore, leave it behind, and keep letting go, and keep uh, dropping what's not needed anymore? Seeing what is, what is um, telling ourselves the truth of what's in the way of just being simple, being simply ourselves. And um, because, as you know, spirituality has its, uh, it, can, it, it can easily have its own stink, you know, its own ego, um, you know, identity. It, it takes on, it's another type of identity, and I, I took it on as well. I'll just be honest in different ways. And then just to see and tell ourselves the truth and be honest with ourselves, you know? Like, what is it that we've taken on? Including whatever perception is being taken from this conversation here. And what I think that, Adya, what I heard you say is that it's just so simple and natural, but since we're talking about it, we, we have to use what we can to try to describe and explain based on concepts that are already being used in the hopes that it helps loosen the grip a little bit more even of that. And that's why I think nature is so helpful to, um, as a teacher and as a, as a f- feedback loop of being able to see what, what is in the way between once this what we are, what oneself is, and what the natural world is. And whatever is seemingly in the way, that is a belief. That is a construct, you know? And nature is not saying it, that it's um, anything. It's not reflecting on itself and, you know, and, and coming up with ideas of what it is. It just simply is itself. And I think that's the invitation, is that it doesn't have to be this long, protracted journey Part of the reason sometimes it is, uh, in a good way, long, is so that we can get adjusted to change. But also what can make it long are the concepts along the way. But truthfully, it is just unburdening ourselves of what we've taken on that is unnatural.
Here's a couple of. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you want to respond to that? No, that's, no, that's perfect. I don't want to. I don't want to add to anything to that. Here's a couple of related quotes. One from you, one from Nisargadatta, that'll bring in a slightly different theme than we've talked about so far. From you, when the unseen subject is no longer there, the outside world disappears as well. You become like any other force in nature, not an extraordinary person. If you want to be extraordinary, stay in the highest dimension of self. That's where all the saints are. And from the Sargadatta, he many, time cautioned, many times cautioned that most so-called adepts, yogis, siddhas, alleged avatars, and even jnanis have settled for merely an identification with or addiction to the universal consciousness, or, or I am, still involved with manifestation or beingness, the saguna brahman. And they have not utterly surrendered or merged back into their prior-to-consciousness absolute nature, the parabrahman that is intrinsically nirguna, meaning without qualities, and incidentally, incidentally or secondarily, I would say, saguna. Um, so, without even adding a question to that, would you like to uh, elaborate? Well, just a, a quick clarification in that, because I think it does, it can be, you know, it can be misconstrued. When I say that out, the outside world disappears, now, there's two ways to understand that. One one way is the way I really sort of intend is even to say you know the way we see the world structures the way we see whatever this is. As soon as we call it the world, what we don't usually see, of course we do call it whatever we call it. We're going to call it something, otherwise we can't talk. But as soon as we do call it something that it structures the way we see it. And what I'm saying, when the world disappears, the, the way we've structured to see it, even thinking of it as the world, that structure can completely disappear. That's one way. The other way is, sir, if you're in sort of a, a deeply absorbed state, then, you, of course, the, your whole experience of the physical world does disappear for a while. That's, that's another way of... You know, and both of those understandings, I think, are are completely valid and, and valid in the sense that they can actually be experienced. But how about this part? If you want to be extraordinary, stay in the highest dimension of self. That's where all the saints are. I mean, what saints are you alluding to here? I mean, Saint Teresa of Avila, or you know, Jesus sure. Christ, for that matter. I don't know about Jesus Christ. Um, do you feel like they were somehow in? Um, a stuck state of a very high dimension of self um, that ideally they might have moved beyond? Our idea, our, I don't really want to comment on s some particular saint that might have, you know, that existed hundreds of years ago, because quite honestly, unless I can sit down and say, hey, how are you doing? What did you, what did you mean by what you were saying, right? Then we can have a conversation. Yeah. Um, I'm talking more about the sort of saintly state as people have it in their in their minds. Like when I'm enlightened, I'll be holy and wonderful and radiant and and all that stuff. And not that that's the same as the experience of unity, but it's definitely closer to it than no self is, right? Um, and so if this isn't. I'm not making comparisons, you know, between saints or not saints or you know whatever it is but our idea our, our idea of like like i said earlier the um all the good stuff that we that people pursue is in the state of unified consciousness 
That's what, that's what, that's wantable. That, and that is what I think a vast majority of spiritual people are pursuing that, and, and, and rightly so. You know, it's, 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 like I said, I wouldn't want to go, well, don't do that. You know? Of course, if that's what you're interested in, that's what you, you've got to dance, your dance out. And I think Susanna was eloquently talked about her experience of unity consciousness blossoming into you know, no, no self. Um, but I think sometimes I'll make those sort of distinctions is because there's often thrown in as if they're the same thing. This wonderful, exalted state of unity is the same as no self. And it, it ain't. You know, it's, it's actually quite, quite different. That, does that mean I'm saying one is sort of better than the other and we need to sort of compare? Thank you compare and do whatever we do. No, we don't need to do that any more than we have to say compare any other two experiences. But I think it does, I think it can be a hope anyway that it could be helpful to have some sense of that, that they are two different states of being. Well, I, what I'd like to say is that I, until the since we're using a word, no self, uh, until that came on. <laughs> I don't even know how to put it, you know? It's all like, oh. Just, how about this? Um, when the, the, this, whatever medium was still lying in between itself fell away, that feels more, I don't know, just my experience. I wasn't aware that that unity... Was a had a had a landing place inherent in it. I wasn't aware because I, I think that a lot of the um, non-dual uh, languaging that that is um, you know being used and and as a lot of it is actually true in that there's a ground of being that there's a peace that surpasses understanding. That there is a divine center that you that that feels that it's an it feels one with the whole, and there's a place that no matter what's happening, there's something that's always free of that. You know all that stuff. Never moving. Never moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was able to just kind of like land. You know, it was always a part. It became uh, an aspect of all every experience that was always inherent within every experience mm-hmm. was this. Um, inherent also peace, that which was free of experience. So that which was free of experience was also uh, correspondingly arising, co-arising with experience at any given moment. And so that was what was being lived out, even though it started to become normalized, you know? So I think that with this new transition, what I got to see in retrospect, actually, pretty much right away... (laughs) Is that that there was there had been an, uh, still this 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 veil that was lying in between experience and you know life experiencing itself directly, mm-hmm. and that was that whole landing place that um, quite a few of us feel like that's when you're in it that's it, and it's and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it's nice to be able to include that in the map. Because and to be able to just speak honestly, that actually that is an, that's a phase that that does fade, or it can. 
Is there any end to phases? I mean, do you feel like there's any end to, to spiritual evolution? I don't, well, I don't think there's any more end to it than there is a beginning to it. There is it. Pardon? <laughs> there's no so more. There's neither. No. Neither end nor beginning. No. Right. No. No. I think, I think the end, the, you know, the, the idea of uh, any, any of us that would, would, would feel inclined, I don't feel inclined, but, you know, I was like, okay, this is the, this is the ultimate thing. What, what that person's really saying is, this is as far as I've realized, and I, haven't, and I haven't realized anything beyond, and I might be in such a state that I can't even imagine anything beyond. But none of that's actually an indication that there isn't, you know, or that anything stops, or... I just think it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's life, right? Where, where is the end of life? Where, no self could just be just a step on, step, step on a long series of you know, ladders or whatever, you, or, you know, or steps or something. And then later just, on, you can be looking back and saying, oh my God, there was still whatever. There was, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I was... Stop me if I said this in this interview because I did say it in the talk I gave today. But, I'm, okay. but um, I was talking to a spiritual teacher the other night at the sand conference out on the patio, and I like this fellow; he's a friend. And um, we were talking about this point of is there an end to spiritual evolution? And he said, "Well, I feel like I've reached the end." I said, "Really?" Um, I said, "Well, like if we could contrast where you are now, what your experience is now, with what it was ten years ago." Can you tell me that there has been no refinement or clarification or enhancement or something uh, in some dimension of, of your experience? He said, oh, well, you're talking about the, the sort of the, the manifest aspect of my life and my experience. And I said, yeah, well, that, I'm not talking about the absolute because to my understanding that, that doesn't change and you'd be in trouble if it did. But, it's, um, it, but the relative expression perhaps uh, has continues to be refined and evolve and so on ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. Would you concur with that, agree with that? Um, sure, sure. I mean, I don't know if I language it exactly the same way, but I think the way you language it gets to a point of, you know, um, it's tough because I can't even think in terms that, that all the stuff gets talked in anymore. You know, like absolute, absolute. Relative. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, we've just divide. We just like took a big knife and divided life, and we got okay. On this side, we've got absolute because we can't see it and touch it and grasp it and feel it and eat it for dinner. And then now we've been on the other side. We've got the the, the relative. Da 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 da. da and even da, to da. say absolute does it is fixed. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a point of view. That's so a conceptual world, reality. Yeah. So I think that's the part that, that's... I think these different descriptions and terminologies um, go in and out of relevance as one moves along. There's, I think there's a certain stage at which that makes a lot of sense Absolutely. and it's relevant to one's experience Absolutely. and then after a while it becomes obsolete. Well, it's part of the... I mean, I'm not exactly saying this is in fact true, that, that Absolute is um, not fixed. I don't really even know... <laughs> I just know what I, you know, I'm experiencing, and that those the whole worlds of absolute, as you say, and, and relative just collapses, and there's just this, and there just it's just one thing, 
and it appears to me that evolution's happening. There's constant growth and movement. And um, to say that there's something that's fixed and, and, and stationary, as if everything's coming out of it all the time, I don't know. Maybe that's something else that we've all invented. Yeah. And it's not something that I necessarily uh, believe in. I don't know if I believe in anything, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that may be a good point to end on. Um, do either of you feel like there's there's something, some stone we haven't unturned? Or, or there's probably a lot of stuff, yeah, but, yeah, but, but we're probably thirsty there, and <laughs> and all that stuff. But the, the I said we're probably thirsty, we and thirsty. yeah, and and Nadia, it's, it's a long day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that that you know we could touch on, and that. This is just like scratching the surface, you know, because there's other things that Adya and I have spoken about in terms of the power of attention, creative potential, pure potentiality birthing itself, you know, and that it's, it's, things open up when the medium falls away. It's different aspects of, of what's possible within creative intelligence, what it, what, where, where attention goes once it's not hung up on anymore on um, any aspect of being a self, it frees up a lot of, of creativity and creative potential. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. that's something that we could, you know, leave for another time or not, you know, but it's just to put it out there. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're. I, I think it's an important. It's a really, really important point. Uh, on top of the points that I think it also. Um, there's also a whole physical sort of transformational thing that comes along with it too. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced the brain gets wired differently. Um, it, it's even even the way my experience of thought is much more precise than it used to be. Um, it can obviously get muddled, especially when I get tired or sick. But, um, but, you know, I think there's all these sort of ways that even on a physical level it has, it has an effect. But the thing that I'm really so happy about to have you, Susanna, and also you, Rick, is that I think it's useful to talk about this stuff, even if we do so stumblingly, but in a way that's really authentic, because a lot of the ways sometimes it's talked about doesn't, even people that come to me, not only does it not feel authentic to me, it also doesn't feel authentic to a lot of folks. Because even the idea of no, no self, boy, is it a great ego defense thing, you know? Um, when there's nobody here to do anything, like, okay, if that's real, then that's fine. And if it was real, you probably wouldn't be using it. Oh, it has sometimes been used as an alibi for really egregious behavior. You know? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things I'm happy about our conversation. I hope that it's a bit more real and based in in actual experience, yeah. you know, than than all those kind. Because that one of the nice things is I think you don't feel you don't have to defend yourself. So when the whole self thing, self referencing sort of mechanism isn't operating in the old way. That's one of the nice things. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to assert yourself onto every moment. This is really a nice... Because that... Oh! One thing that I just I feel might, might be important to touch on real quick, and I know that we're reaching the end, is the 
you know how within a unity there's still development and and within this no self that there's still development and if you would wouldn't mind just touching on that so that people don't get confused necessarily imagining that it's the end of I'm not talking about yeah. just evolution and but just a certain type of development that could still be going on without the self-referencing mechanism being in place. Sure. Well, I think if we just imagine that whatever like you said without the self-referencing mechanism being in place that we just sort of even conceptually remove that and then realize that's all we've removed. It's the only thing that's been removed. It's not like life comes to a halt or that we stop learning and we stop growing even as a, on a personal human level. It, it doesn't confer perfection. I mean, absolute jerks can realize this and fairly saintly people can realize this. And if we're, you know, that's just the way, that's just the way it is. But I think something in our humanity just has that, you know, I think has that sense of, um, sure, you know, both saints and, and jerks can realize no self and, and has happened. And it doesn't mean that when a jerk realizes it that it's any less real than when a saintly person realizes it. But that also means that probably the person who realized it through their personality development that stunted, jerk is a very heavy-handed way of saying it, just a stunted or more narcissistic sort of, you know, personality, sure, they would do well to continue to evolve as a human being, you know, and, and, and get beyond whatever... And, and I would like to just make a point here, to, um, if it corresponds with yeah. you, um, just because I can feel... a a question coming up. Whether it's you or it's the audience that may be listening, I don't know. But that is that it doesn't mean that there's a person who is going to be working on themselves. It's life itself that is wanting to clarify and clean out the vehicle. It's just what it does. It's out of love. It's out of purification. It's just what it, it just... It, Interest is like, wow. Look at that. There's, look, at that. look at that thought I just hung myself up with there for a moment. But there still doesn't mean there's a center to consciousness of consciousness where it's landing on. That's the difference. That's, and that's a big difference. I want to comment on the jerk point. <laughs> no, here we go. No. <laughs> Set yourself up for that one. You know, you were talking a few minutes ago about how living this seems to have uh, an effect on the brain and on the thought process and so on and so forth. I think, feel free to differ, but um, I think that there are conditions which are more or less conducive to realization. And that's why all the spiritual traditions offer you know, behavioral suggestions and purificatory things and so on. Because, who was it? Some Zen guy said... Um, Enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident-prone. So I I think, yeah, on a bell curve, there are going to be people way out on the fringes who are are not living very wholesome lives who wake up somehow. But chances are, you know, if you have cultured some purity, some integrity, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, it's going to be a more conducive internal environment for awakening to take place. But... uh, but once it has taken place, that is not to say, as you said, that you're perfect or that the job has, that all the cleaning up that can 
potentially take place, uh, has taken place. Ken Wilber likes to say there's three things, waking up, cleaning up, and growing up. Right, and, and they don't always necessarily come together no. um, as, as a package deal. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they seem very much segmented in some yeah. people's experience. There seems to be a correlation, but it's more like not a tight one, more like a big stretchy rubber yeah, band. Yeah, it's a loose correlation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that eventually pulls the other ones along, you know, but they, they, the stretchy they can get quite stretched at sure. some point, and that you have sure. examples of people who seem to have achieved quite remarkable degrees of realization, but are behaving quite... Sure, because like, for instance, you could, you could be quite realized, but have given the family of origin you came from, and who knows whatever factors, and you may be really bad at sort of knowing how to be in relationship. Yeah. And just because you're, you know, you've awakened or yourself dropped away or something doesn't immediately download into your system. Here's how to, here's how to relate to people really well, any yeah. more than we wake up and all of a sudden I become a physicist. You know, I just I suddenly have all the information downloaded into me. If I wanted to become a physicist, I'd have to really work at it. Yeah. And if I wanted to become like you were saying, Susanna, about that, that sense of, I think part of the nice thing about when self drops away is you don't have the same barriers within your own, within yourself to seeing your own little moments of, oh, it could be, that could be a little truer, a little more developed there, or you just, you don't have a resistance to, to seeing that. And out of, there, then there's a curiosity, at least for me, it's kind of a combination of sort of curiosity and, I don't know, compassion or something mixed together that, that would move towards those places. And um, I, I, I always find that's an important part of all this. Yeah, and I think it's a good place to, to leave it, yeah. that the, the growth continues. It's just... Um, Never ending, and I know you love ending things like that with your interviews. That yeah. growth is never ending. Well, and then P.T. Barnum said, "Always leave them wanting more." <laughs> Hopefully, if we came together and talked about this two years from now, it'd be a little bit different. Yeah, because we would have both grown. We would have all grown a little bit and maybe seen something a little bit deeper. And Hopefully, we'll have that opportunity. So, in in wrapping it up. Susanna, why don't you just say a little bit about what you have to offer, you know, uh, as a teacher. What do you do, and who do you, how do people connect with you, and things like that. Okay, well, um, you can connect with me through my website, susannamarie.org. I offer teachings and mentoring, and work with people one-on-one, in groups, and in person and online. And you're available for retreats. Yes, I would love to. I would love for life to open up in that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you did one up in Seattle not too long ago, and people really enjoyed it. I got, I heard good feedback. Thank you. Yeah, it's enjoyable. I, I feel really in alignment with what I'm offering, what I'm doing. So um, it just uh, is just an extension of just this life. I might add something I know about you is that. You're very humble about, you know, wanting to make this available to people, and um, not that you have the time to talk to everybody for hours for free all the time. But you know, you you, you charge reasonable amounts of money for what you do, and um, you know, you're, there are people who are 
you know, having individual consultations for $500 an hour and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it, it puts it out of reach for so many people, but you're, you're definitely not one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I, in the past 15 years, being a single mom, I've gone through all kinds of things, not having enough money at times. So I have a, a special uh, understanding, my own understanding of what it's like. Yeah. And I think that's part of, you know, how life seasons us and, and it supports a, a one in the work that we do, opening us up to being um, an understanding of other people through our experiences, like through health crises. We have more capacity to understand other people in that way or when through loss, right, or through financial crises that I've had, you know. So there's a, more of an a understanding for, for all kinds of ways. Thank you, though. And so your website is susannamarie.org. Susanna Marie. Oh, gosh. S-U-S-A-N-N-E. It's German, but it's Susanna. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for your support, and thanks for bringing us together and supporting it. And thank you, Adya. Oh, it's fun to do this together. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And to Mukti, too, for... Oh, you should have seen Mukti before this interview. She's, like, moving these great big patio umbrellas. And, oh, my God. You know, she's like this... Amazing. She just, like... Cleaning the windows. I mean, she just flew into action. So sweet, <laughs> <cleaning> us. <laughs> so. uh, and I site is adyashanti.org. People can go there and find out. And you have a mailing list, and so do you, that people can sign up for to be notified of events. And, and you do this great thing many Wednesday nights where you have an online talk live and people can call in questions. And, and so, you know, listeners should just go to both sites, susanamarie.org.org. Find out everything that about what they do. So, um, thank you all for thank you both first of all for doing this, and thank you for listening and watching. Those who are doing so, really appreciate your attention, and hope this has been valuable for you. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is an ongoing series of interviews, and if you'd like to see previous ones or sign up to be notified of future ones, or get the audio podcast uh, to listen to while you commute or whatever, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and just explore the menus. So thank you. Wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you.